Welcome to episode 215 of the Women of the Military podcast. Shannon runs the nonprofit Shield of Sisters and shares her experience of serving in the Navy on this week's podcast episode. Shannon's dad, an Army veteran, gave her two options. She could go to college or join the military. She decided to join the military. She picked the Navy because they were the only recruiter available when she went to the recruiting office. Today, she leads Shield of Sisters. Shield of Sisters hosts retreats for lady service members and veterans and family members that have survived military sexual trauma. Through the retreats, ladies are guided through the life reverse engineering and given the choice to change their story and their vision for the future. Let's get started with her story now. Welcome to the show, Shannon. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here and share my story. Yeah. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, you know, when I was... I think 16, um, my parents started talking about college and what I was going to do with my life. And I said, I'm not going to college. And my dad said, well, you can join the military or you can go to college. And so I was like, okay, I'll join the military. And we went down to the recruiter's office. The Navy was the only one in that day. And, and I joined. So it was pretty straightforward. You were like, I am not going to college. And your dad was like, well, you have two options. And you're like, okay, well, I know that I'm not doing one. And so it sounds like there wasn't a lot of research or like deep dive into figuring out what to do. So what was that experience like of kind of in a way being forced to join the military? Or would you not say it that way? Well, I wouldn't say forced. I mean, it was a choice. I could have gone to college. I could have done a lot of other things. But, you know, I grew up a military brat. My dad was in the Army. My stepdad was Navy. So I kind of knew what to expect. But it was a shock. It was a a huge culture shock. My parents, even though they were, you know, military and, and everything, they just arriving at boot camp and being screamed at and cussed at and everything. It was, it was a huge shock, but it was something that I think I truly needed because I was never really good at completing anything in my life. And it really changed my whole personality and, and just my whole being. Yeah. And that background about your parents being in the military kind of gives it a little bit more context of like where that idea came from and why your dad was like college military those are your <laughs> options absolutely and it just so happens you know with my dad being navy or my my stepdad being navy and my dad being army with the navy being the only ones in that day it just kind of worked and you know i i knew i wasn't uh, going to go in the army because i grew up around fort knox and i was like nope so it probably would have been that anyway but it just uh absolutely one of the best decisions in my life how did you pick your career field? Did you go open or did you pick one out? I picked one out. I was a cryptologist. I was a CTO. So had a lot of investigations, you know, into my background, which, you know, they, I remember them calling and saying they talked to my kindergarten teacher, you know, what do you do in kindergarten? That's so bad. You're not going to get this huge security clearance. Just picked it out based on my, my ASVAB kind of, I was really good with puzzles and things like that. And they were like, well, you could do this or you could be an operations specialist. And I was like, ah, that one sounds good. So there wasn't really a lot of thought going into it, but it was really a neat experience. The job was crazy, a lot of training, but it was a good time. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about being overwhelmed at boot camp. So once you got into like the over the first initial of like, wait, what did I sign up for? How did the rest of boot camp go? 
I was probably one of the laziest recruits possible. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was a laundry petty officer, so I had to do that every morning, make sure everybody had, you know, the, the sheets and stuff down to where it had to go. You know, there were several times where we didn't get laundry in, so I had to stay in our barracks and get laundry washed. So I paid a lot for that, um, you know, with physical fitness. But outside of that, you know, I didn't get into a lot of trouble. You know, there was, I made good friends. It seemed to fly by quickly some days and other days. It was like, oh my God, I'm never going to get out of Florida. And then it just kind of graduated and went to school after that. So I love that you were, I like that you were like, I was the laziest. <laughs> like not really a description you hear when people talk about boot camp, but that's, that's really funny. And then you said you went to schooling. There was a lot of schooling. So what was that experience and how did it compare from boot camp to doing your tech school, which I know is Air Force. Air Force say tech school. You guys say A school. You know, I think it was a lot like college, which I was trying to avoid. You lived in barracks, which was kind of a dorm. We partied a lot. We drank, which I wasn't supposed to. So that's a whole nother thing. And then you went to school and studied a lot. So I was just getting paid to do it and have a good time <laughs> and, and, you know, worry about my clearance and still had to keep my room a certain way and do physical fitness. And so um, it was just kind of a version of college that I was trying to avoid, but it was great. I had a great time. We were in Quarry Station. So I was always around the Blue Angels and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, it, it helped my study habits. I was a horrible at studying. I was horrible at school. I struggled the whole way through. But um, they taught me ways to learn. It was just kind of a different way to do at college. <laughs> so it sounds like they gave you the structure and the tools that you needed to get through it. Whereas if you had gone to college, you weren't quite mentally prepared or emotionally prepared for that sort of thing. And in college, you're kind of more on your own. So it kind of gave you like this structure and rigid things that sometimes made it a little harder, but also gave you that like push to do it because you're in the military you're getting paid to do it and you could see the light at the end of the tunnel yeah absolutely and you knew that you know I mean there was a bit of duty and honor there to like you know I'm doing this for a totally different reason but yeah there was a light at the end of the tunnel I knew I was going to go to work after that the things I was learning was really exciting there's nothing in college like what I did you know so it, it was a a very valuable experience I took with me, you know, through my, my later, I did end up going to college <laughs> behavior. So. Yeah. Is there anything else from your time at tech school that you wanted to talk about before we dive into your career? No, it was, it was short and sweet. You know, we got through all the training and then, you know, found out where I was being stationed, which I was very disappointed because I went to Norfolk. And at the time, the slogan was join the Navy, see the world. I grew up in Kentucky and I went to Virginia for the rest of my enlistment. So it was disappointing in that fact. <laughs> and as a cryptologist, you weren't on a ship. You were in like an office. I was in an office. I uh, got stationed with the submarine fleet. So they didn't let women on the submarines at the time. It was 92 to 97. I was in a little bitty room. Uh, you had to go through three doors to get into it. Um, so very different experience than a lot of people. I have zero C days on my, my rap sheet. So Did you feel like that was, I mean, you said you were disappointed. You went to Virginia. You were ready to see the world. And then 
And then you were in a unit that you didn't even have the opportunity to go to see if that came up because of your gender. Like, was that a hard experience or was that just the way it was at the time and you didn't really think about it? I didn't really think about it. I mean, it was just such a neat thing what I was doing. And, you know, not a lot of people get to go into the submarine field, even just in the, the part that I was doing. So it ended up being a really neat thing. And I learned a lot. There were things that happened, you know, I was and around when the, the Russia was still the USSR. And so we were dealing a lot with that. And so there was just a lot of really important things going on. So I don't think I missed out, you know, by being somewhere else or not going on a ship. It just would have been nice to see other places. So Yeah. And with your top secret clearance, I know you can't talk a lot about the work that you did. You kind of gave us the like, you know, the details of like what you could do. But if someone is like trying to learn more about like what a cryptologist does, what would you tell them? And and if there's any experiences from your time in the military that you can talk about generally, that would be awesome too. I don't know how they would go about researching because they've changed it a lot in the 25 years I've been out. Um, I know like the one I was doing, crypt, uh, CTO, um, is now like a radio man. And when I was in, they did the the lesser security clearance type communications where I did a higher security clearance type communications. So, you know, I think just talking to the recruiter, you know, saying, you know, I want to be in Intel, you know, really studying the ASVAB, knowing what you're getting into, because it does come with a lot of stress. They constantly push that you have a security clearance and you can lose it. And if you do, you're going to go to the fleet and chip paint off the side of a boat. That was their big threat all the time. It was a lot of thinking, a lot of like you had to be very fast and quick. So if you're a person who has to take a lot of time to do something before you react, not the best field. But, you know, as far as what I did, like I said, you know, we worked uh, in the Russian atmosphere, Russian realm. Can't really tell a lot of what I did because it was just so secure. Um, When I first got there, we were dead in the water because we had bumped a Russian sub and so my first six months, we we weren't doing, none of our, our submarines were out because we were kind of chilling for a little bit. And then we hit up again. And it was, it was quite the experience going from like six months dead to, you know, bam, we've got all these subs out and just a lot of work. It was really cool. It's almost like that first six months, you kind of got to do like hands-on training in an exercise type of form. And then once that time period was lifted it was like oh I get to actually do the work so it was kind of good timing for you to show up because you got to learn about it in the office setting after you had already learned about it at school instead of like coming in and like everything's going crazy and trying to learn it yeah absolutely because in school they don't have all the equipment that's in every place you you attend you know you're stationed so there was a lot of specific submarine equipment that we used and that six months really gave me time to get a good foot footing. And I was one of the first uh, supervisors as an E4 in the unit. So it was really neat to, to learn all that and then turn around and be, you know, supervisor because I had had that six months to really focus and understand the equipment. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Were there any challenges being a woman in that career field because I mean we already talked about how subs were off limits for women and then obviously women are a minority in the military so did you face any challenges being a woman especially being a young supervisor and having the responsibility of leading I had a lot of challenges in the in the navy when I joined uh tail hook had just broken 
And so we went through a lot of sexual harassment classes. There was a lot of discussions about what you can say and what you can't say and what you can do and what you can't do. But I don't think it quite carried over to the Submariner <laughs> the, uh, field. Um, it was very challenging. They weren't used to a lot of women. Um, so once they go to the offices and start working at that level, they're like, oh, wow, there's women in the military. So I had a lot of issues with sexual harassment to the point, you know, it just got really difficult wanted to to leave the unit and wasn't allowed but you know I think what it did for me was gave me a strength and courage to one stand up for myself and two to just really understand that there's harassment and then there's joking around and there's a fine line there and you know I'm one of the biggest joke pullers there is I love to talk a lot of junk but then there's a there's a line and and that's a hard line when it's crossed and you know it it can change your military experience and it did for me. Yeah, I I totally agree and I'm doing a lot of research right now on sexual harassment and assault and rape and like why people don't report and where that comes from and I think a lot of my research is pointing to that the military is trying to like highlight the good things that they're doing and they're like pretending like those good things make it so that the bad things that are still happening aren't as bad and it's like you need to focus on the whole issue and like when you write your report and you talk about the positives but you don't talk about the realities of the challenges that are still there they're not going to get fixed because you can't just be like things are getting better it's like Yes, but there's still a long way to go. And I feel like that's kind of the reports that I've read are like, compared to this year, we had more people reporting and we had more people who were prosecuted. And it's like, but that's only part of the story. And we shouldn't be comparing it to last year's metric. We should be comparing it to like what people are experiencing in the military and not look at it from like an academic or report level, but like a personal, how is this affecting the people in the military and ultimately how that affects the mission because you already mentioned you left after your first assignment yeah absolutely and you know i didn't bring up uh, a lot about what else happened in the while i was in the navy and i was actually raped um and i did report only because the the gentleman i'll use that term very loosely gentleman had some medical issues that would have uh, impacted me significantly once I found out. I wasn't allowed to go to counseling because I had a very high security clearance. So I never really dealt with it, which, you know, the reported versus unreported, restricted versus unrestricted, you know, it just, um, there's a lot of things that the military doesn't quite do right about it. And I'm not bashing the military for it. You know, they've, they've done a lot of things, but like you said, you know, we're going to put a pretty pink bow on it. We did all this really good, but the fact is there was 35,000 females raped last year in the military or suffer. They call it military sexual trauma, raped and, or sexually harassed. You can, it, it kind of intertwines and it's so difficult, you know, to watch our sisters go through that because we raise our hand to protect and defend and we're not protected and defended amongst our ranks. You know, there's this brotherhood 
and somewhere there's a disconnect and and why it's allowed to continue because the the prosecution for it is nothing like on the civilian side. So there's a lot of things that need to change. But I think, you know, um, organizations are popping up. It's a very hot topic right now, given the amount that increased in 2021. You know, I'm doing my own nonprofit to help with it. And I just think that, um, you know, when it's one in three women in the military deal with this, there has to be a lot more done. For sure. For sure. I think it's really an important topic to talk about because if we hear people's experience, that's the whole like taking a number and making it a person. Because when you look at numbers, you can get very like analytical and not realize that those numbers are real people and their lives and then their lives affect other people. So like that one number that one person has such an impact on so many other people that it shows like the magnitude of the problem. But when you're just looking at a number or a percentage point, it can really become like, oh, well, it's not that big a deal because, you know, even though one in three, I don't know how you could say that's not that big a deal, but sometimes it feels like that's what the military is saying. Like, oh, it's not that big a deal because two thirds of women are not experiencing it. And it's like, but you're missing the point that one third and how big of a challenge, not only for women who are in, but I think it's really having a negative effect on recruiting for women, which is something that I am really passionate about because I think the military has a lot of good things to offer, but we need to fix the things that are broken to help protect women. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, my daughter came to me when she was 18 and she said, Mom, I joined the Marine Corps today. And I said, no, you didn't. And I had never shared with her what happened to me. And unfortunately, she suffered the same, endured the same issues as I did. And so when you want to say one in three, or it's just a number, it's a mom and a daughter, two board members of mine and myself. So that's three board members who, you know, endured military sexual trauma. And, you know, we we can make a bunch of numbers. There's 9,635 women veterans in Wisconsin who have reported military sexual trauma. So, I mean, you know, let's throw a bunch of numbers around. But when you look at a mom and a daughter that both wanted to serve and willingly raise their hands, that changes that dynamic a little bit. And so the more we get those stories out there and the more we talk about it, the more action is going to be taken. You know, I've been doing a lot of talking with people around the country, you know, because of what I do on my day-to-day job, not my nonprofit, and I talk to them and tell them what's going on, they're shocked. Even, you know, our brothers, you know, they're like, what? That would never, no, that's not possible. One in three, we we protect our sisters. I'm like, well, it does happen. And, you know, I don't, I would never discourage a woman from joining the military. I think it's, like I said, it's an, an amazing experience. But when you do, be careful and know know how to protect yourself, know your boundaries and know when to say no and hold firm on that no. And um, just be very uh, socially, um, uh, trying to think of the word I want to use. Just be very aware of your your surroundings and, and what's going on and, and be very firm in what you say. Yeah, when I was working on my book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, it was one of the things that I really wanted to impress upon women that like, It's not fair that women have to have all these extra layers and like women do it in day to day life anyways. And then it's kind of heightened in the military. But I would rather you be aware of what's possible and have your guard up instead of being ignorant of what 
you could put yourself in a situation. And so it was really hard to write it in the right way that came across the right way. It's really a hard subject to talk about, but it's still so important that we talk about it and that we bring it up because I think that awareness can help, but it's not the only solution. There's so many more pieces to the puzzle that need to be worked on. And that's just like the first step. Absolutely. And you know, the leadership likes to talk about, well, we're doing this, we're having training, you know, military goes to so many training classes, you know, it's just kind of like death by PowerPoint. Um, They've come up with rules like if you've had one beer, you can't consent. Well, we drink beer and liquor all the time when we're in the military, you know, that's part of the culture. We have all these different. So I think we need to be proactive instead of reactive. You know, we really need to, to one, change our recruiting standards um, for men and women, you know, because we've really lowered that bar. And I think it's changed uh, some of the, the personalities and the moral, moral compass of the military. You know, legislatively, there needs to be things done. So, you're, I mean, there's just a lot that can be done. And um, but that that big the biggest aspect right now is just awareness to just how big the problem is. Yeah. And that all the things that have been done in the past are just the tip of the iceberg. There's still so much work to do. It's not. Whereas I feel like the reports that I've been reading, they're like, we are getting close to solving the problem and I'm like no you're not no, not even close not even close if if when I served you know 30 years ago and then my daughter joined and there's still that big of a problem and it's growing it's not shrinking it's growing yeah you didn't solve anything you know go back to the drawing board let's you know check that battle plan yeah so I want to talk a little bit about your transition out of the military so you we're doing your job, you're experiencing harassment, and you experienced rape. So when it was time to get out of the military, were those big factors on why you left, or was it something else? It was those two factors, and then I had a son. I had a month-old baby, and they said, I was up for orders. They're like, you're going to Korea for a year by yourself, and I said, no, I'm not. And that was really the deciding factor. I I can't leave my my newborn for a year. So I just, I said, you know, I did five and a half years. I'm good. Serve my country honorably. Time to go. And that was my transition. I just cut the cord and went. And how old was your son when they were planning to send you to Korea? A month old. See, the military has changed so much, but so when I was in you, well, I was in the Air Force, you had six months and now it's a year. But it's just crazy to talk to women who served like earlier or before I did and how like they're like, you just had a baby, you can go. And it's like, that's just crazy. Like a month is like less than my maternity leave was. And it's, oh, and that's just going back to work, which is crazy. Now the the maternity leave is 12 weeks, which is less time than you were even going to be given to be with your newborn son. So they have made positive changes in that aspect. That's awesome to hear because it was really, I probably would have stayed a lot longer, but you know, you're, you're right. I hadn't even gone back for my six week checkup and they're like, you've in five weeks, you're gone. No, <laughs> here's my DD, uh, you know, give me my DD 214. Here's my ID card. I'm done. So because of that, it also sounds like it was a very like quick transition and you were kind of in like the emotions of like postpartum and getting out of the military. So what was your transition out of the military like? Stressful. 
it was horrible. I, you know, I had newborn, I was, you know, getting out of the military. I had no training outside of the submarine field. You know, I, when I went to the unemployment agency, they were like, so what can you do? And I'm like, is there a submarine in the backyard? And they're like, no. And I'm like, I really don't know what to tell you then, you know, so it took a lot of time to find a job that one I could do with, you know, two, two young children, um, that I was skilled at. And my first job, I think lasted six months. And, um, then we PCS to Hawaii and I just decided to just stay at home and and be a stay at home mom. I was going to ask if your spouse was in the military because that adds a whole nother dynamic and layer. So, so you found a job, you were working, and then it was time to move. And with all the challenges you were facing, you were like, I'll just stay at home. So what was that experience like having to make that sacrifice of not being able to work outside the home? Because it sounded like that was something that you would have pursued more had you not had the PCS. It was difficult. You know, I'm a very much, um, I'm very extroverted. I like to constantly be doing something and not that kids don't give you something to do constantly, but I didn't really feel like, you know, I went from using a lot of my brain, you know, working on all these different aspects in the military, you know, with the, with communications and submarines and, you know, all these security clearances to, you know, here's Barney. I love you. You love me. And it was a big change, but then I started getting into more of the spouses groups, you know, finding outlets, you know, socially that, that kind of helped, but, you know, being the service member and then switching to the spouse and, and constantly having to reinvent yourself and, you know, change careers, it's not easy. And then you have to look at that, you know, I still have those, those veteran issues that come up, you know, and so ultimately I decided to go to college, which I said I would never do. Now I have three degrees. And I've been able to really use those, uh, mostly in the veteran realm. I've done a lot of work with veteran uh, nonprofits, but, you know, I've been elected as a mayor. I've served in uh, congressional staff. I've been a lobbyist. I've I've just really been able to utilize what I learned in college, what I learned in the military, and transition it everywhere we've gone. That's great to hear. And I love that. So were you able to use your GI Bill when you got out and go back to school? I had the very antiquated GI Bill, but yes, I'd used that. And then I used my husband's after 9-11. So I used uh, two different times. So you used the Montgomery GI Bill when you, and then the post 9-11 GI Bill, which you can transfer to spouses or children with additional service. Yeah, it, it ended up being very beneficial. So how long was your husband in the military and you were... A military spouse after serving. He served 30 years, just retired recently, and I, we've been married 25 years, so it's uh, not much into his his career. We got married, and, and you know, it's been a lot of, of great experiences. You know, I don't know how dual military couples do it because it is hard, you know, just being the spouse or just being the, the service member. When you both serve and you're trying to figure out what duty stations we're going to, are we going to be close? Are we going to be geographical bachelors? It's very doable. It's hard. But, you know, if, if, you know, a woman listening to this is considering joining and, you know, your significant other is considering joining, you know, it's something definitely to, to think about long and hard. Yeah. My husband and I were dual military for six years and he's still in 
the military now, and so I I really understand what it's like to go from <laughs> service member to spouse, and that's why I started a business because I didn't want to have to keep going and doing entry level civil engineering jobs, and now the internet is more. I know I'm not that much that old, but like in the last ten years, I got out in 2013, and like remote work and like that sort of thing was like sort of something but it was kind of like a unicorn type job and now I think the world has changed a lot to make it more flexible especially for military spouses who want a career but they have the option of like doing a remote job that moves with them and they don't have to worry about where they're stationed but there's still challenges of like being on different time zones and in different areas and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the previous administration did a lot of work um, helping military spouses. I was actually on a couple news channels talking about it because they allowed for a lot of our a lot of our certifications that we tend to get, you know, with being military spouses using some some of the education benefits, um, allowing them to be more transferable across state lines. And that's been really helpful. And, you know, I think it's just a whole different level of service that we pick up as spouses that can be a challenge. Yeah, I forgot about certification. That is like, because I had my professional engineering license in Ohio, which was great in Ohio, but we haven't lived in Ohio since I got it there. And every time we move, you have that challenge of like getting the certification and like there's teaching and nursing. There's like so many, when I started learning about all the different career fields that had certifications and how they were state specific and how challenging it was for each move. So that is a really important piece of legislation to make change. Yeah, it was, it was very beneficial. And I've seen, you know, I've seen it work great for my daughter. I, you know, have been just shocked at how well it it has uh, worked and, and I'm really pleased with it. So I'd love to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your nonprofit. You kind of touched on some of the stuff that you're doing, but I'd love to hear more about it and um, why you created it and the work that you're doing and who you're trying to help. My nonprofit is called Shield of Sisters. Um, We are a team of lady veterans. We say lady veterans. I like the women veteran, but I'm just a little bit older. So I say lady, Uh, lady veterans who are helping empower other lady veterans who suffered military sexual trauma. We do restoration retreats over a weekend. Um, We bring a group of 10 women into Wisconsin and we host them at at Airbnbs. That way it's very intimate. It's very liberating to be able to talk to each other in such a, a close setting. We're not doing death by PowerPoint. We're not in a hotel conference room. And so, like I mentioned, you know, three of us have endured military sexual trauma. I, I started the, the, the nonprofit because, you know, I never dealt with what happened to me and what happened to me. We don't, we don't necessarily tell our stories because we all have that. We were raped. We were sexually harassed to a, a horrible point, but my story was so horrific and I never dealt with it that I started kind of bleeding on people that didn't cut me. And I was working in a congressional office and I was the military liaison and I had five different stories come in from females who were raped in the military and never helped and needed a congressman's help to to get what they needed, you know, that restoration, the help with the VA, the help with their command. And I just said enough. I, I can't, you know, I knew what happened to my daughter. Finally, I, you know, told my family my story. And out of that, Shield of Sisters was created. 
you know, we are working hard to, to share the knowledge of what is going on in the military. I'm talking to legislators. I'm not lobbying, just talking to them going, you know, hey, this is a problem. We need to fix this. And we have a very high number of veterans going into Congress right now, highest we've ever had. And so I'm really hopeful that they will take on, you know, this um, cause and, and help their sisters. But it just, it was created out of a need. And that need is strong and it's hard. It's, you know, it's hard to talk to people and go, yeah, I was raped in the military and, you know, tell your story. And they, they're looking at you like, I can't believe you're saying this. You know, you're, you raised your hand to protect and defend and you were mistreated in the worst way possible. And, you know, when the military realizes that counseling helps, that, you know, it doesn't affect your clearance, that you can still do your job, I think more females would one report and two probably stay in because they got get the help that they deserve but so oftentimes it goes unreported because they're intimidated by their their chain of command they're intimidated by the person who um you know raped them um so there's a lot of factors there and i really hope that you know through what we're doing we can help them and and really make an impact because there's not a lot of organizations out there that do what we do yeah, I loved hearing the story of like how it came to be. And I went through a 12-step program to deal with some of the trauma from my deployment. And at the end of it, the podcast was created. And it's like my way to give back by giving women a place to share their story. Because at the time, there weren't any podcasts talking about women veterans and specifically. And so I love how your experience and your, you're taking your trauma and you're using it to help other people and how that sharing your story and having other people share their stories. I love the intimate where they get to talk because it's so empowering when you can talk to others about the hurt and pain that you felt. It's like really scary and it's hard to take that step, but to have that safe place where women can do that is just so powerful. So thank you so much for what you're doing for, I love lady vets. I think um, Melissa Washington uses that too for Women Veteran Alliance. And I was like, that's, I like that. I kind of, you know, I saw that. I was like, that's kind of how I feel. You know, and for the long time, I hated being called a lady veteran, a woman veteran, a female veteran. I'm like, I'm a veteran. I served. And, you know, don't add a title. Don't add my gender to it. I'm a veteran. I raised my hand and I, I, you know, swore to, to defend our constitution. But I was at a conference a few weeks ago and it was a panel of three ladies and they were talking about, you know, how important it was to, to make that distinction because we do serve with honor and we do serve a huge purpose in the military. And, you know, adding lady or woman or female or, you know, any of that to veteran, I think only makes it more impactful because not a lot of, of, uh, ladies and, and women go out there and, you know, do something like what we do. You know, we have our first responders or, you know, our police officers that are women who, you know, kudos to them. They do amazing things. But so often women do the the jobs that like teaching or cooking or nursing or, you know, and it's just not the same as putting those boots on. And, and um, you know, it's it's definitely something I've started embracing a lot more. Yeah, and it's also something that we don't really talk about. Like, we serve, I mean, there's so many stories of women who filled gaps during World War II, and then after it was over, they went back to their normal lives, and they never talked about it. And then 
people didn't know their stories because no one ever talked about it. And so I think that we as women often don't want to like be in the limelight, but there's so much power in us sharing our stories that it's really important that we do use that title of lady and woman, female, to highlight that our service is important and valid and it's just a little bit different and we have different things that we experience and we need to talk about those things because I feel like sometimes I was so lonely because I thought that because I was a woman, I was the only one. And once I started finding other women veterans, I realized I'm not the only one and there's so many other people who are experiencing what I'm experiencing. Absolutely. And I couldn't say it any better. It, It's, um, you know, there's so few women in the military and, and, you know, we never get to use that sisterhood term, you know, there's the brotherhood. Um, and you know, that's why shield of sisters is named what it is. We are a sisterhood. We are impactful. We've done a lot. We've grown a lot and there's a lot more that we can do because of the sisters that went before us. So it's definitely a small club and it's a club I'm extremely proud to be part of. Me too. Me too. So I'm going to put a link to shield of sisters in the show notes so that people can find it easily but if you want to say it the website right now that would be awesome and then i'll link to it in the show notes okay it's www.shieldofsisters.org perfect and then my last question is what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military or young lady yeah <laughs> I know see we, we now we're like, well, what do we call us? You know, I think my advice definitely you know research each branch because each branch has a different culture. It really you have to know what you can handle. Um, you have to know if you can handle the being on a ship for so many days or you know the Marines and how tough they are. I mean, female Marines are a whole different level of of bad. A. <laughs> do your research, know your branch, know what you want to do. You know, don't let the recruiter talk you into something because they have a quota. You know, if you want to be, you know, a cryptologist and do intelligence and, and the Air Force says, nope, not, you're not going to do that. Go to the Navy, then go to the Army, go to the Marine Corps and talk to them and really know what you want to do and stick to it. Don't just fall for the first thing you're told in a recruiter's office. You know, this is your career. It can be 30 years. It can be five years. It can be whatever you want. But if you're not happy with what you're doing, you're going to be miserable. And, you know, just really make sure you're firm in what you want to do. Um, embrace your time. It's not easy. There's a lot of struggles, but it, on the other end, you'll come out just a totally amazing different person. And I think the person, the, the woman I stand here today would not be who I am without that five and a half years of service. I think that's really great advice. And I love the part of like, don't just do what the recruiter tells you, stand up for yourself, know what you want and ask questions and Listen to stories of other women who have served if you want to hear about different career fields, different branches, all the branches except for the Space Force are represented on the podcast. Um, But my husband's in the Space Force and I can tell you it's kind of like the Air Force, just a little bit different. But I am working (laughs) to get someone from the Space Force so that we can get more stories so that you guys can hear more about that. But thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being so open and for the work that you're doing to help 
Lady Veterans. Thank you. It's been such a, a pleasure and honor to talk to you. Like I said, it's not an easy story, but it's one that has to be told. Because we talked about military sexual trauma in this episode, I want to make sure that you have resources in case something was triggered or if you want someone to talk to. I wanted to make sure you knew that there are resources available for you. So the first one I have is the Veteran Crisis Line. You can call 1-800-273-8255 and then press 1. Or you can text 838255 to get help. There's also a chat service available at www.veteranscrisisline.net. And the VA has also created an app called Beyond MST. You can go to the show notes for the link to that website. And another resource that I want to share with you that I've used for my trauma from my deployment is Cohen Veterans Network. If there's a Cohen Veterans Network in your state and you're a post-9-11 veteran, service member, or family member, you can get free counseling with Cohen Veteran Networks. There are a number of resources out there available, but these are the ones that I know of and that I utilize, so I wanted to make sure that you had them available to you. So thank you so much for listening. This is such an important topic, and I'm really glad that Shannon was able to share her story and that she's doing so much work, which that is another resource you can use. Shield of Sisters, reach out to them, get help, and know that you're not alone.